Okay, so, when it's 1939 and green screen doesn't exist, how do you make a tornado? Well, the Wizard of Oz first tried a rubber tube, but it was too shiny. Then they had a brainstorm, a 35-foot-long sock. The special effects team stuffed the sock with chicken wire, hung it to a rotating crane, and blew dust down the bottom so it would look like it was literally tearing up the Kansas dirt. For extra drama, they burned sulfur in the air. You definitely could not get away with that today. It sounds cheap, but the tornado was the most expensive special effect in The Wizard of Oz. Even if the team, who'd never actually seen a tornado, screwed up by having it sashay back and forth, kind of like a supermodel. Tornadoes do not do that. The next year, in 1940, green screens were invented. But, I mean, well, back then they were technically blue, but who cares? Hollywood dreamers can build anything with imagination. And a huge wind machine. And cleaners who don't mind sweeping up buckets of dirt. Hi, I'm Amy Nicholson, chief film critic for MTV News, and this is Skillset, the podcast where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. Let's keep this tornado theme going by asking storm chaser Harold Brooks about working on Twister. And actor Dermot Mulrooney tells us about the other great love of his life, the cello. That's all in this week's episode of Skillset. Meteorologist Harold Brooks knows everything about tornadoes. He's surrounded by them. Harold works at the National Severe Storms Laboratory in Norman, Oklahoma, which, quick aside, is where I went to college, and is just 15 minutes away from some of the worst disasters in U.S. history. So, in 1996, when a blockbuster named Twister came to Oklahoma, bringing with it stars Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt, the filmmakers called Harold Brooks for advice. Did they get the science right? Let's ask Harold. But first, let's ask him why he loves studying tornadoes. Unusual things in nature that sort of challenge the way you understand how the planet works are always fascinating to watch. And, and tornadoes, having grown up in the Midwest, are probably the primary example for somebody like me. Well, how did you get involved then consulting with Twister? Well, in 1994 and 1995, NSSL led a field project called Vortex in which we took vehicles into the field to try to collect information on tornadoes. And for the 1995 project, I had agreed to be the, the media liaison sort of for the, the various newspapers and, and television that, that came through to do things. And just by chance of fate, uh, NOAA headquarters decided that we should treat uh, the movie people from Twister uh, just like a media contact. So I ended up being the media person for them, and, and they ended up asking me questions. <laughs> like what kind of questions? Well, we had, we had several basic things that we worked on. One was just providing um, safety information for the cast and crew. If they're going to be outside in Oklahoma in the springtime, many of them not particularly uh, accustomed to having thunderstorms around, just something as simple as lightning safety, what they needed to do to be prepared to protect themselves while they were, while they were actually doing their job. There was also a lot of stuff done with the art department coordinator in terms of what things could look like, should look like, in fact, the, the opening scene in which the Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton characters meet out in a field was actually filmed twice, once in a, in a classroom, and we had done, uh, we provided things like, uh, things you might see in a classroom studying severe storm forecasting uh, as another option, and they ended up not using that version of it in the, in the actual movie. I love that you talked to the cast about how to be safe in real Oklahoma weather 
when people who watch Twister might say, those actors, the characters, as storm chasers, are doing crazy stuff. They're just running straight towards tornadoes, and they're driving in fields where they could get stuck. Oh, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that went on that there's no way you would that anyone who was at all responsible would do. But I, I, I know that none of us particularly wanted someone to get uh, injured or killed for, from something that could be avoided relatively easily. I don't think anyone should ever should use any of the things that are done in Twister as personal safety information. <laughs> but uh, we wanted to make sure that you know, nothing bad happened while they were out filming. Now, I want to talk about the science of Twister, because one thing I know from tornadoes, and I used to live in Oklahoma, in Norman, where you're at right now, actually, it's where I went to school, is that tornadoes, they suck, they don't blow. So when Helen Hunt is by a tornado, her hair should be sucked toward the tornado and not pushed back away from her face the way it is in the yeah, film. Absolutely, that's certainly true, that the, the tornadoes in the that are shown in the movie tend to look like they've got a lot of what we would call outflow going away from them, which is not the way the tornadoes in the real world work. Uh, there's a there's a scene particularly of, of Bill Paxton where he's watching the wind blow, and the wind's blowing away from the tornado, and it's very clearly the, in the wrong direction. There was a lot of stuff that was problematic in the weather depiction. I think one of the, probably the thing that, the biggest thing that was would be difficult to swallow was the fact that the storms that the tornadoes came from didn't look like the kinds of storms you see tornadoes come from. Um, the tornadoes just kind of dropped out a cloud as opposed to forming out of a out of a rotating thunderstorm that that you would see the visual presence of it before you saw the tornado. Right. So in the movie when they're saying a tornado looks like it's coming, that's not actually what it looks like when a tornado is coming. No, the the, the tornadoes don't aren't in the right what we would call the right context of the storm. Uh, the the storm in particular was wrong. The tornadoes weren't horrible. Uh, but that the storm that they formed out of wasn't very, weren't, tended not to be very good. Also, these tornadoes, if we could be real for a second, they're, in the movie, they're roaring like lions. Well, yeah, there's certainly noise. Now, whether it's exactly the kind of sound that you heard out of the, that you hear in the movie is, is not true, but we certainly ex- understand that they, they tend to be a loud place. I was told there was a screening in Lancaster, Texas, you know, one of the suburbs of, of the Dallas-Fort Worth area that had been hit several months before Twister came out, and that the, the reaction of almost everyone in the audience, and these were people who had been victims of the tornado, was that the sound seemed right. The sort of the, the loudness uh, was triggered a lot of memories for them. It may not have been exactly right, but certainly the fact that in the immediate vicinity of a tornado, it's a loud place to be was something that they thought was, was spot on. A lot of people who don't live in Oklahoma, or a lot of people who haven't been around tornadoes, their only experience might be Twister. Is there anything you feel like they should know for the record after seeing Twister? Well, I think one of the you know, major things is that you know doing some of the safety things they did is probably not a real good idea. We know that in terms of a, if a tornado approaches, you want to get as low as you can and put as many walls between you and the torna- tornado as possible. Uh, you don't want to go um, you know, under a bridge. You don't want to um, go into a barn and try to tie yourself to a water pipe. That's typically not a good idea. Yeah, two so things I think that's kind of. Yeah, that's kind of safety information that we'd want people to have. It's also true that the uh, certainly one of the other things that happened that wouldn't be wouldn't occur in the in the real world, certainly in Oklahoma, is the fact that we have these tornadoes repeatedly occurring over a you know over a you know twelve hour period or so, and going overnight. We don't get a very whole lot of tornadoes in Oklahoma that are overnight, and certainly not out of continuing out of a system that happened. You know, earlier in the previous day, so the the concentration of all the tornadoes into a into a one day period is something that that just that just wouldn't happen around here. 
what about the rivalry between climatologists? Are climatologists really that competitive? I, I don't think there's anybody who really you know competes to try to collect data. In fact, we, we're much more likely to to try to work together to collect data, in, particularly on field projects, simply because everybody knows they only have one or two kinds of instruments typically that they can look at the uh, tornado with, and that to get a complete picture of what's going on everywhere through a long period of time, you need large numbers of instruments. And so we have to cooperate with each other if we want to be able to collect the data that can actually help us all understand things. If you only have one data set to look at the a tornado, one kind of data, say radar data or just surface observation data, you're limited in what you actually know about what's going on within the storm. So people tend to cooperate a whole lot more than compete with each other. What's your favorite tornado movie? Oh, my favorite tornado movie, and I think this is true of almost everybody, is The Wizard of Oz. The, the opening scene of, of Wizard of Oz, that tornado looks so good uh, that you know, it, it's hard to believe the, the, the simple uh, mechanism that they use to make the tornado, but it actually looks really good in context. Uh, and I think you get the feeling of the, other than the fact that it's unlikely the house would stay together uh, <laughs> while it was up in the, while it was in the tornado. Uh, other than that, you really get the feeling of this, that kind of feels right. I like that. Well, Harold, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're welcome. That was tornado expert Harold Brooks on Twister. Dermot Mulrooney is everywhere. You've seen him act in My Best Friend's Wedding, the underrated wolf attack flick The Grey, and the latest Insidious Chiller. And also this week, he stars in Careful What You Wish For, a love triangle where Dermot has to stop Nick Jonas from stealing his wife. But here's the weird thing. There is more Dermot Mulrooney in Hollywood than you know. He was there in Jurassic World, in Inside Out, in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. You just couldn't see him because he was behind the scenes in the orchestra playing the cello. Wait, wait, he is that good at cello? Well, I'm curious, you've done these soundtracks, you've done Up, Inside Out, Jurassic World, Mission Impossible. When you sat down there the first time to record one of these scores, did the other musicians look at you and say like, wait, what are you doing here? It, it, it was a little funny. Now they accept me, and really there are, <laughs> there are certain rules of etiquette and behavior that applies in an orchestra that never applies on a film set. So I had to get savvy to some of that stuff. The dynamics between people is much different. Uh, but, you know, everybody's really cool, but... Um, Wait, what uh, do you mean? I would have thought film sets were kind of stratified. Where it was like, don't talk to the actor if you're a PA. What's going on in an orchestra that's different? I don't know. It's, it's a different type of group dynamic. The way I see a film set or, or a TV show is, is that there's never any repeatability in the pattern of your job that you go to a different set, you work with different people, different actors come in for different scenes. And so this would be more like a job where all of these players in this orchestra come they play with other people too of course i don't but they come and they sit in the same place and work with the same people doing a different version of the same thing every day so for me it's refreshingly uh, predictable the, and i must say to answer your question the musicians in michael giacchino's orchestra are the most wonderful people who welcome me warmly with open arms um, and get a total kick out of uh, me, the actor, being there. 
I'm glad there is no joke like, where's your trailer, mister? No, there's nothing of the sort. No, we all carry our own weight equally. And really the process of making film music has become so fascinating to me in that just one single musician, if they're doing what I do, has to read music, not having ever seen it before, listen to a click for the tempo in your ear, watch the conductor, and that's only after the maestro has written the, the theme, the music, and then it's arranged, and then it's orchestrated, and it, you know, during that process, it's timed out to the film for its best impact on the scene. Overnight, there's a symphony sitting in front of 120 musicians who are playing it perfectly from the first time they see it. It's mind-boggling. And it's free. It's free because people aren't even paying to go to a movie to hear the, the score. They're paying to go see the movie, to experience the whole part. But really, all of that, in my mind, that's the, that's the free money you get from going to a movie, is the music that, of course, is one of the things that makes a movie even work at all. But um, people forget that they're also buying with their $14 ticket or whatever it is these days. They're buying that, too. I'm curious, like, how this also compares to... You, you've played with artists, everyone from, like, Melissa Etheridge to Gnarls Barkley. You, yeah. A couple questions. Are you auditioning for this? And and if and when you're playing with them, how does collaborating with, say, Melissa Etheridge or Gnarls Barkley on a stage or on an album compare with collaborating with another actor on a set? Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, those are very separate circumstances, each of them, so they don't really compare. I was hired by... Um, to play with um, Norris Barkley at the Grammys. I also backed up Beyonce that one year just because I kind of wow. knew the person who was uh, hiring the cellists. So that was like a one-off experience. Incredible, though. That was the year he had uh, that hit, Crazy, which has a really great string part behind it. So um, Melissa, in those days, I knew her. We were really close friends, so she included me in... Um, in a song that she'd already written and guided me through the uh, a solo cello part that you can kind of hear in the background. I did, however, one time at uh, Universal Amphitheater, she had me on and I played um, the Sleep While I Drive with her, which was one of her famous songs, a beautiful song. And then for an encore, we played uh, Can't Always Get What You Want. And if you know that, uh, you know, the Stone song, if you know that opening French horn part, Mm -hmm, I played right. that solo cello at Universal Amphitheater at a Melissa Etheridge concert. So that was a real highlight for me um, to be playing live uh, in there. I'm curious about one other thing. Like, I imagine that when that to be a great musician, you want to be in touch with the emotion of the song. And that makes me think about acting, that both of them are about how to channel feeling through what the action that you're doing. I don't know. I won't say I'm overly emotional, but I'm really aware of how I'm feeling. Whereas I feel like if I hadn't been an actor or a musician, maybe by now I'd have given up. <laughs> and uh, none of those, those feet, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be feeling them now. Does that make sense? I've had to remain, keep these emotional channels open all these years. And uh, now I'm, sometimes I'm tired of it. I wish I'd spent all those years denying stuff and, and, uh, you know, and <laughs> squashing down my emotions. I'm, I'm joking, I think, but... Oui. 
Well, um, you're joking a little. There is a similarity in just, just as you said, using your feelings to express something. Yeah, very much so. So say, when you watch a movie with a cello player, like, I don't know, The Soloist with Jamie Foxx, are you looking for something in there that the actor is getting really right or really wrong about pretending to play the cello? Oh, the solos with Jamie Foxx. Yeah, no, I didn't see that one. Um, but yeah, I will always, all, all musicians too, even the, you know my stand partners talk about who, who did a good job playing the cello, you know, faking the cello in a movie and who didn't. So here's the people that did pretty good. Paul Bettany in Master and Commander. One of my section cellists trained him, and they think he did a pretty good job. Um, and Emma Watson. I mean, Emily, of course. Emily Watson as Jacqueline Dupre did a fantastic oh, yeah. job. Um, cello is pretty, uh, very hard to do, to fake play. But it's easier, much easier than the violin, which almost no one has ever done that well, that convincingly. So you've actually had a couple opportunities to use your cello skills in front of the camera. You were on the show Mozart in the Jungle, where you were playing your cello, which is A, awesome that you were hired for a second skill, and B, kind of funny, because I want to read you this quote that I found from a musician who lives in Germany who deeply analyzes Mozart in the Jungle to see how well the actors are doing at faking playing the cello. This is what he had to say about you on the TV show. He said, quote, I have to say that his cello playing slash faking is so far the most convincing musician imitation that we have had in the series. Perhaps he really took lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it very much. I, I did. If there's any way, you know, if you feel compelled to answer back to the guy, let him know he, he's right on the money. Um, I took a lot of <laughs> lessons, and, uh, it, you know, it, um, I know that they included me as a cellist in that, hoping that I'd bring authenticity. So, um, you know, I was really thrilled when they got in touch with me to join that awesome cast who are doing a great job, all of them. Gael conducting is uh, wonderful, and everyone's doing great. That show is so uh, beloved already. That was Dermot Mulrooney, actor and stealth cellist. When you see Star Trek Beyond next month, listen for him. I am so glad he could join us for this week's episode of Skillset. And I am so glad you could join us too. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Amy Nicholson, and if you have a movie question, tweet me at TheAmyNicholson. Tune in again next week for a new batch of experts and hopefully a new, new way to look at the movies. This episode of Skillset was produced by Michael Catano and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV News and at MTV Podcasts. You can subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.